0: This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Welcome to the Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from the Constitution state of Connecticut in the USA. Well, it's that time of year when Breaking View's columnists around the world stick their necks out and give their predictions for global economies, markets, and companies in the coming year. To help digest some of the 40 stories in our latest book, which we call The World Emerges, we are producing two versions of the Views Room podcast. In this episode, the first, I chat with Peter Thal Larson, our EMEA editor, and Lauren Silva Laughlin, our deals editor in New York, to get a glimpse of some of the choice cuts from our teams in the United States and Europe. Next week, my colleague Pete Sweeney will chat with two of his colleagues in Hong Kong to go over some of the stories our Asia-based team produce. Happy listening and happy holidays. Okay, great to talk to you guys, Peter, in London. In fact, you're in the office in London, which is uh, pretty extraordinary. Lauren, you're in uh, the Connecticut Bureau. Um, Great to talk a little bit about some of the stories you've written and edited for this year's predictions book. Uh, let me start with you, Peter. You wrote a, a kind of a big picture piece about the role of governments, um, in particular the the role that governments will play now that they've become a little bit like they did after the 2008 crisis, larger equity investors in in companies and uh, are going to become, as you say, the new activist investor on the block. What are the ramifications of that in 2021?
0: Well, I think I mean, to a certain extent, we've already seen some of these trends as a result of the pandemic. I mean, as you said, some of this started in 2008. Governments ended up as equity shareholders of banks, not through desire, but through necessity. And some of those governments are still equity shareholders in banks. But I, mean, I think what we've seen more recently is um, two things really as a result of the pan- pandemic. One is just corporate bailouts. Um, we've seen governments injecting equity or quasi-equity directly into airlines and travel companies and uh, and other companies that they want to rescue. Then they've also lent a lot of money to these companies, often with government guarantees. And the assumption is that some of those companies are not going to make it or that they will need to restructure that debt. And again, the government will find itself as the unwilling shareholder of a load of companies. But the other thing that's happened uh, sort of at the same time on a a lesser scale, but I think we're going to see more of it, is that governments are also actively buying stakes in companies. So we've seen uh, Germany invested, I think, 300 billion dollars in, in a vaccine manufacturer called CureVac to make sure that that company would stay in Germany uh, and wouldn't be lured someone else. We've Wasn't that UK, the one that
1: Donald Trump was trying to... Uh, yeah, to Donald do Trump do was, was, yeah. was
0: supposedly trying to lure them to the US and so the Germans put got the checkbook out took an equity stake and said you're staying oh. here. Um, we've seen the UK invest in a defunct satellite maker because they want to have a sort of satellite presence post-Brexit, and I just think we're going to see quite a bit more of that sort of on the one hand, just you know, bailouts turning into long-standing equity stakes, but at the same time also, Ah, uh, governments being more proactive, and you know, you only need to look at Italy, which has the sort of historically been a very interventionist government, and then sort of unwound a lot of those investments. It's now back in the game. It's buying stakes in in payments companies like Nexi. It's bought a stake in the in Euronext, the the um the exchange operator. Um, you know, and so governments are asserting themselves. They're spending money on lots of things, and one of the things they're spending on is stakes in companies.
1: Well, these are often some of the ones you cited here, whether it's the 300 million euros that the Germans invested into CureVac, the half a billion dollars into OneWeb that the British government invested, or the Casa Depositi, which you're talking about the Italian sovereign wealth fund has put it into Nexi and the Euronex. In a sense, these are longer term, um, you know, in strategic investments. But there's also been, of course, a lot of I don't know what you call it, just bailouts. Right. So, uh, Lauren, let's let's talk a little bit about what's happened in the U.S. with airlines. We've seen we've seen the U.S. government. Now, it's not clear to me exactly what pound of flesh they're extracting from the airlines. But, you know, you've got a view about what that's all how that's all going to turn out.
2: Yeah, the first bailout round, which came you know, early in the pandemic, they arranged loans and grants with the airlines, the U.S. government did, that really were not that punitive. And the idea at the time was that the airlines companies were going to be used to sort of be a de facto uh, unemployment mechanism. And what we've seen over the last several months is these airlines have have kind of had workarounds with some of the rules that were attached to these loans and grants and fired people anyway. And now, you know, coming through is another bailout package. And you know, the government is, and the U.S. taxpayer is going to have an even bigger stake in the airlines after this. And, you know, the question is, what kind of guiding hand are they going to have in these companies in the future? You know, under Trump, and sort of a Republican led administration, they wanted to be, you know, slightly more aggressive in, in terms of what they were taking from the airlines. But um, it's unclear how this new administration is gonna work through that. And, you know, a lot of it will fall on on the treasury to sort of negotiate some of the loans and grants. Well, one but, of your,
1: of course, you, you, what you have is a prediction in the book, which yes. basically, <laughs> which is quite bold, which says that the big four U.S. airlines, Delta, American, United, and Southwest will uh, go down to three, and you're basically arguing that there will be some sort of merger amongst uh, these guys that brings us from four to three large airlines in the States. What's the – I mean, how is that – how does that solve the problem that you're Well,
2: I mean, it solves one problem and may create another, really. but. The government has an interest in now at having these companies succeed, and one way that they can do that is having some of the, you know, relatively stronger airlines buy the relatively weaker ones. And we saw this in two thousand eight with the banks, right? They, the sort of concept of of too big to fail can kind of be applied to the airlines too. American is really American Airlines is really the weakest airline in terms of its balance sheet, and taxpayers have given it almost $13 billion already, um, it could potentially go bankrupt. So let's just say the company is staring down bankruptcy and, and the government isn't going to get paid back, where they might have otherwise looked down upon a merger, they would be have an interest in sort of making one happen. Um, and so it. I probably would shock the market. You know, a lot of people that I had talked to while I was reporting on the idea, you know, said, you know, I, I'd be surprised and then sort of by the end of the conversation, they said, yeah, yeah, I actually think that's going to happen. But it could be applied to the oil industry too. You know, some of these other essential businesses or or, or businesses that have been deemed essential throughout this process, you know, the government might take a, more of a guiding hand in mergers.
1: Well, it, it isn't I guess the question here is I can see how it solves – you know you get capacity crunched out you know, you have it might help the end of the industry but how does it i mean com- competition would be kind of an issue no i mean you know when, when, the, when the airlines crunched last time around there was a lot of you know yelling about how this had um reduced choice and competition and raised ticket prices but i mean over time that hasn't been the case is that right
2: That's true. So we all like to have our favorite story about how the food is bad or you waited in lines and we all tend to blame airlines mergers over the past. (laughs) Well, I guess, yeah, you pay for it. But (laughs) I mean, over the past 10 years, there's a massive consolidation in the industry. But at the same time, ticket prices have actually fallen really dramatically over the past several decades. And so consumers really haven't been that harmed by mergers. Um, Now, it's probably safe to say that prices could increase if the big airlines are brought from four to three. But there are ways of handling some of the monopolistic type aspects to it, like, you know, kind of diverging routes and making sure there's competition in individual areas. Um, and and also, you know, because the sort of general public as a taxpayer is invested now in this industry succeeding, they might be willing to give up a little bit in fares, so which means they're not losing their investment on the back end.
1: hmm. hmm. Well, so which one do you think would would go out there? Which one is the... Okay, uh...
2: so strongest U.S. airline of the big four is by far Southwest, and weakest is American. Um, The problem is Southwest and American have two very different cultures, and Southwest really just sort of U.S.-based regional airline, and of course American is an international airline. So I'm going to go out there and say American and United, which are of the two weaker ones that kind of prop each
1: other up through a merger okay well that's interesting you heard it here first folks um, <laughs> now I'm mean, thinking again about the role of the state one of the a lot of governments are pushing you know for greener economic reforms um there is there are a few stories that we have here about about you know ESG or let's just focus on the e and one of the ones that uh, was written in Europe uh, Peter by George Hay your uh, colleague is about this this idea that uh, some of the big oil companies particularly some of the European ones, might consider in 2021 spinning off their renewables operations? Because the market seems to be giving a much higher uh, multiple or valuation multiple to those businesses relative to the old school hydrocarbons business. How do you, I mean, what, what's your sense of, of how that will play out?
0: Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, t- talking about that ESG trend. I mean, one of the big themes of 2020, obviously, has been that, that that sort of the pivot that people have made in terms of their investment portfolios away from sort of you know dirty, uh, uh, polluting sort of um, you know kind of industries that are going to have trouble um, in a, in a in a in a planet where, uh, where where everybody's much more focused on on global warming uh, towards. The, the, the industries that are seen as the winners in that area and so and that those those companies include you know r- operators of renewable power and so one of the interesting dynamics is that you have these big oil companies like BP and Shell and Total have also got quite large already got quite large renewables investments uh, offshore wind onshore wind solar power and so forth and they're all making promises to ramp up investment in those in those sectors, um, to kind of use the cash flow they're getting from oil to basically pay for the non-oil stuff. Um, but one of the interesting things that's happening is that is that the price of those kind of assets is also going through the roof. So it's quite hard for these companies to buy anything. And so one of the ideas is that uh, they could maybe package up the businesses that they already have. And I mean, in total, in BP's case, that's probably you know, a portfolio of assets that at some point could be worth $20 billion plus each. Um, they could package those up take advantage of the demand on the on the stock market for those assets float them as a like list a partial stake raise some equity or whatever and then use that cash to make further investments and also create a currency which could then be used for other MA. you know they could they could they could hit their targets for renewable investments by buying up other renewables companies so and just that disconnect feels like, you know, uh, uh, it can't really last. And particularly for some of these oil companies, if you were to unlock some of the renewable investments that's sort of buried in these oil companies, you could potentially create quite a lot of value.
1: Yeah, that's a good piece. Um, the other sort of a similar vein, uh, Robin Mack, our colleague in in Hong Kong, writes a piece about how uh, at the top of sort of investor agenda, well, let's say activist investor agendas will be pushing for better disclosure about energy use and emissions for some of these big tech companies, basically data centers. Have you looked at that piece, Lauren?
2: Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating piece, actually, because in sort of my past life in Texas, you know, there was a lot of talk about using wind power for the data storage centers that are there. And there's quite a lot of them um, from Google and others. Um, it, you know, it's one of these strange things. I was shocked in her piece she had some data about emissions and how, uh, how you know, much, much carbon these uh, data centers emit. That is one of these really interesting areas of targets, sort of activism targets that nobody really thinks about, um, but is, to- is, I think, spot on. You know, yeah. data set, I mean, data is, a- and now with COVID, of course, is-, is becoming a much bigger business. You see everybody sort of investing in data from the actual centers themselves and the warehouses to the power. And of course, you know, Google and, and all of the other tech giants need it more than ever. Um, and so the way they, Generate the power in those data centers is become going to become front and center. I think right. That'll
1: be. I think that'll be. You know, because you have this whole new class of sort of activists. You know, the people who like Jeff Ubin or Linda Rothschild, there's people like that who are looking at these things. And it's not. And not to mention the black Black Rocks of the world who are who are looking at these things. I mean, in a similar vein, one of the kind of interesting stories that we have out there. Again, you know. Dear listener, we like to stick our heads out here and a, a warning that um, we really like our predictions to be provocative and to get the juices flowing. We don't entirely expect them to come true. But when they do, we're pretty happy. And in this case, we have a uh, Chris Thompson. Uh, Peter, one of your folks in, in Europe, wrote a piece about how Tesla worth an eye popping for five hundred and fifty billion dollars. Um, should use its extraordinary hyped-up stock to buy an old-line business, sort of just like AOL did with Time Warner 20 years ago. And the uh,
0: object of its speculative affections is is Daimler, um, so you know the maker of Mercedes-Benz, the venerable car maker. Um, and really, the logic here is it's almost the reverse of the idea of oil companies spinning off their um, their renewables business. This is kind of someone like Elon Musk taking advantage of this extraordinary surge in his stock price, which really is based on, on you know, on on optimism and hope about the future about that business, rather than than any particular performance over the past twelve months, um, and saying, you know, what very simply, there's a sort of there's a relative value trade here, you know. I have a car company that makes that made. I think last year Tesla made one percent of all the cars sold in the U.S. Something like that, maybe one and a half. You know, mm-hmm. it's still a tiny proportion. Um, and to and to take that that huge valuation and basically use some of the stock to absorb basically a, a, a bigger and more established business, which which in this case would be Daimler. And the argument for Daimler would be that they are trying to. Uh, they're trying very hard to sort of make the pivot from from away from from combustion engines towards electric cars, um, and that some of the sort of the Tesla, you know, stardust and know-how and stuff would uh, would rub off on them. And, and you know, AOL Time Warner is is kind of the is the. Uh, uh, sort of the model for that, really. You remember that in early 2000, mm-hmm. you know, this company, which was basically a bunch of dial at that point, dial-up internet modems and a and a website um, and a bunch of email addresses, bought the venerable Time Warner with all the studios and the record companies and all this kind of stuff. Um, and obviously, it was a huge culture clash, um, and, uh, uh, and 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 probably destroyed a lot of value in the process. But actually, from from the perspective of an AOL time an AOL shareholder, it was a great deal because oh, it's when yeah, when the internet bubble bop, popped, um, they still had a real business left over. And I think there has to be a sense if, you, if you're Elon Musk, this isn't going to last forever. And um, and now may be the moment to, uh, to cash in his stock. And I suppose
1: that, that, you know, if you look around the world, you know, mercedes it's a well first of all daimler is not a controlled company i mean it does have some large shareholders but it, it you know it could be bought on like a bmw say which has a family that controls it or um fca or you know which has the Agnelli family or, or any and, and it's also at the high end you know this is the yeah. premium sector which is certainly where um tesla plays and they could you know it could i could I I don't know, I sort of, you know, as much as I think it's a speculative idea, I think it's a good one,
0: so. Well, there's also the other, the other wrinkle in this, which really um, shocked me when I first read it, is that um, uh, so, so Tesla would have to get shareholder approval for issuing more than 20% of its stock to a, to, for, for an acquisition. And, and actually Tesla is so big relative to Daimler that uh, our colleague Chris Thompson calculated they could pay a 40% premium for Daimler and still buy it with, for, for basically for less than a hundred billion, and therefore not have to get approval from Tesla shareholders for the uh, deal.
1: And you know, we know that, in he doesn't love Elon doesn't love asking his shareholders for any sort of approval. So that makes all the sense in the world. But we'll see what happens there. Um, you know, what uh, we've got a sort of one last thought is we've, we've got the. A chapter called "Forget About It," which is a lot of sort of bits and bobs and sort of slightly funny pieces. One one is about uh, European soccer, and you edited that piece also by Chris Thompson, no?
0: I did, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's interesting. Well, so Chris has been writing quite a bit about the the the, the travails of European soccer, which, as you know, has been playing games have been played in front of empty stadia for the whole year, um, and this is uh, kind of weird for the game, but also. A, a big financial blow because um, uh, you know, kind of, fifteen twenty percent of revenue will, for the even for the top clubs will come from from gate receipts from just people in the in paying paying buying tickets, and so um, and what this has done is kind of shown up the, the the how unsustainable European soccer is in financial terms. So I think uh, the, the the killer number is that, um, is that post the sort of the if you take account of the reduction in revenue from from lost gate receipts, I think something like 75% of the revenue that, that European clubs bring in, the top European clubs bring in, goes out the door to their players. So mm-hmm. so literally three quarters of their revenue goes to their players. Um, and, yeah, and then they have to pay for everything else. And so what's happened is that even these big clubs that, that generate a lot of cash from TV rights and merchandising and everything else are suddenly loss-making. Barcelona, Manchester United. And so... Um, the question is what to do about that. Well, one thing is obviously to try and get the fans back in, but we think that that's going to take some time to bring them back in the numbers uh, that they were there before. Uh, and so, one innovation that could happen in the meantime and might actually make the make the game more sustainable financially in the long run would be to have a wage cap. And actually, right. this is something that happens in you know the land of the free, the U.S., the National Football League, the NBA, some of the other uh, leagues. They have. Uh, they have a cap on the on on the wages that players can earn. Um, and so I think in the in the NFL, something like forty eight percent of 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 revenue goes to the players, which is a much lower proportion than it would be in soccer. So it's possible that in a crisis like this, there may be an opportunity for um uh, for the owners of clubs to uh, to exert a bit more influence over the over the stars who uh, who play on the pitch uh, and to try and uh, try and cap their wages. Right. Okay,
1: now let me turn back to New York. Lauren, you mentioned your previous role, your life in Texas. You've moved to the New York area. You're now manning the womaning the Connecticut bureau. Um, we have a pretty fun story in there that your colleague Richard Beals wrote about, which is what happens to the cities, the city of New York. What happens to the city of London? I, you know, like you both to maybe weigh in on this. Now, um, you know, we have seen it's a you know New York City is a bit of a of a ghost town at the moment and you right now peter are in canary wharf which where you can see the tumbleweeds or the british version of a tumbleweed crossing um, how do you guys think the cities are going to fare i mean we know we know what richard has written here which is basically that they will start to see urban buzz return is the quote um and that they of course remain dominant as global financial centers uh, i mean what's your sense lauren why i mean you just moved back to the new york area you must be bullish <laughs>
2: Uh, I'm invested in being bullish for sure. So is, by the way, so is Richard and all of us who live in these cities. Um, it's funny because there was a story last week about Mullis saying that its investment bankers can work outside of its main hubs, you know, main sort of bureaus. And I I don't know. I mean, I agree with Richard on the one hand, like everything sort of pulls back into the city. People are going to get out to places like Connecticut and their internet's not working and, you know, they're going to lose power when a storm comes and they're going to say, I think I liked my apartment better. Um, the problem is the cities are becoming really broke and the public transportation is, you know, underfunded. It was underfunded before this. This is making it worse. The trains going in and out of the cities to the suburbs are going to get pulled. They're, they're going to become more difficult. And so, I, I, I worry that while people will want to get back into the cities and be attracted to going back to them, um, the crime rate's gonna increase, the city funding's gonna worsen, and you know, it's going to be a sort of couple of decades trend uh, away from them. That said, I also think they're at the most exciting places to be right now. New York City got sort of boring and, and started to have it go back to its roots will be a fun place. So I'm actually happy to be here personally, but I, I do worry that there's long-term travel. Well, to your 100%. point,
1: uh, subway ridership in New York remains down about 70% from a year ago. Bridge and tunnel use is off by a fifth. So it's not just that people stop coming, you know, or stopped using the Metro North or whatever, and and they're just not coming in to the same degree. Two thirds fewer people took the London Underground in October, according to Transport for London. What's your sense in in, in the London perspective, Peter?
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be um, I think it's going to be slow, and and there will be a, a perhaps a bit of a shift. People thinking they can work remotely and move somewhere else, move out into the country, take advantage of the differential and in house prices between this, which still exists quite large between london and the rest of the country um but i think it also you know i, I think there's also there's there's scope for creativity and, and and sort of uh and repurposing and actually i'd like one thing i thought was interesting in this context is a is a piece that our colleague amy donnellan wrote which was suggesting that kind of what can happen to some of these buildings that will be will no longer be needed as much and so she was suggesting for example like big shopping malls could become logistics centers for e-commerce amazon will buy them up and fill them with packages and then if i sit in as i'm sitting now in canary wharf where i haven't been for nine months basically uh looking at these skyscrapers thinking what's going to happen to all these buildings i i just think apartments i just think you know, that the UK has opened its doors to people from Hong Kong, they're issuing loads of British passports or or visas for people to come from Hong Kong. And I think I spent four years in Hong Kong, I think you could turn some of these buildings into without without too much trouble, you could turn them into apartments, sell them to Hong Kong residents, and and people would be pretty happy. Hmm. All right, guys, well, I think
1: we covered A few of the stories in there um it's going to be great reading and i'm really excited to see how you know how how many of these actually turn out to be true and even if they don't i think they're gonna be fun to read have a great break guys
0: Thanks, thanks rob
1: that's our show for this week hats off to our producer freddie Joyner in new york our final thanks go to you, of course, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingnews.com. Stay healthy and happy holidays.